say it often, but there are certain places I go and I feel refreshed by the time I leave, and I feel refreshed by you folks and, and uh, what God has done, and, and your pastor just been awesome, A-plus host, and I appreciate him, and I appreciate him mostly because he's a foodie, and uh, like myself, and he likes to make good food, and I like to eat good food, so that's a good combination right there, and uh, we both smoke regularly, and uh, we even cook meat too, and, uh, <laughs> but uh, we get into that, and he's way more into it than I am, and uh, I just cook the meat and you know, serve it up, and he's like, I got this kind of sauce, and I'm making my own chutneys, and I'm like, I thought chutney was a girl who lived down the street from me. I mean, I don't even, it's like, uh, and, uh, and when he gets into it, and I appreciate that, and he has never steered me wrong one time with food, I can say that, and I appreciate him, and I appreciate his stand for the Lord, and I appreciate his, his love for the church here, and his care for the church, and church is, and he's got a giving heart and a giving spirit, and his church does, and it comes from the top down, and I appreciate that. And I know that it's, it's, it's a reflection of him and, and the leadership around here of this church. And thank you so much for uh, caring for me while I'm away. And uh, let's turn our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And uh, it is good. Wave at him, Greg. You see my buddy Greg back here. And uh, just look for the other black guy in the building. And, uh, but, uh, and it is so good. It, last time I think I saw him, he'd driven from Fort Bliss all the way up to, is that the last time I saw you? No, you came back. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and every time we get together too, preacher, we eat too. So, and, uh, but uh, it, it's a blessing to be able to uh, get to see him. And like I said, I texted him the other day and I was like, you live where? Like, this is awesome here. And uh, so this is a good church. This is a good church and I appreciate you being welcoming again. And we'll see what the Lord has for us here tonight. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17. Uh, this message was really born out of uh, my trip back in December and November. And uh, you'll understand when we get down to it, God just taught me some incredible things. And uh, let's read the scripture. We'll just jump right into it because, and pray for me, I've got a flight tonight and I will be headed out after church back up to uh, Seattle there and I catch, catch a red eye flight, go back home and I'll be home by the day, by the, well, I was going to say by the breaking of the day, that's not true. I'll be in Minneapolis by the breaking of the day and I'll be home uh, shortly after that time, so pray God will give me safe travels, and uh, pray for your pastor as he's got to drive back, and I appreciate him being able to get me there, and what a blessing again that it's been to be here. Thank you for those of you that shared some testimonies with me last night, and uh, God's doing something here, and I appreciate uh, the testimony of just God's people, just staying faithful through trials, and no doubt in a room this size, there's just been stuff that just we never even know about. You've never counseled about it. You've never told anybody about it, but you just go forward for the Lord by his grace, and I pray that you'll continue to do that, and, and uh, whether here, there, or in the air, we'll meet again, and uh, God God keep you because of that. First Samuel chapter 17, would you stand with me tonight as we look at God's word? The Bible says in verse 28 of First Samuel chapter 17, The Bible says, And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why camest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? It's, it, it, it's almost like, you know, you know how when you talk to your brother or sister, and you're kind of talking down to them? 
and it's kind of your own slick way of saying it. And uh, it's like the kid I told, I said, he's in my class, I said, son, I said, you know, uh, intelligence has always been chasing you, but you've always been faster. <laughs> so, I mean, just like, you know, wisdom's always been reaching, but you've always been short-armed. You know, it's like, it's like uh, the fellow I used to say, you know, I, I, I would like to have a battle of wits with you, but I don't fight unarmed people, you know. And uh, it's kind of, he's kind of insulting David at the same time. And look at what he says to him. He says, and where are those few sheep? Now, it's like, you don't have to say few, but he felt the need to say, yeah, where's, where's your little crowd there? Where's your, go back to your little few sheep that you have over here. Of course, we know Goliath has stood on the uh, Valley of Elah, and he has challenged and defied the armies of the living God for 40 days. He has come down there, and he has challenged the armies of the living God, and he defied them. He said, pick you a man, and he can come out and fight with me, and... Of course, they were shaking in their boots, and they retreated from the battlefield. And then David hears about it, and he's like, David comes on the scene. His father-in-law gives him some things. His father, excuse me, gives him some things to take to his brothers. And David's like, okay, let's go. And then David gets there, and all of a sudden, he hears that giant come out again. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of a Jewish man. <laughs> and David's like, who is this dude? And they're like, shut up. Don't say anything. You know, it's like when you have the fight the big kid in the neighborhood. Like, oh, I'll go get my brother. And your brother's like, shut up, kid. <laughs> and he's like, who is that guy defying the armies of the living God and defying our God? And they said, well, that's Goliath. And he said, and he, and he said, and he's, so he, he's, in the passage here, we'll go over it all in a minute here. He's like, what's going to happen to the man who takes that ugly dude out? He said, well, Saul's going to give him this and this and this. He's going to give him inheritance. He's going to give him his daughter to, to, to be his wife. And, and how'd you like to be that daughter, by the way? Here, Dad's like, if he beats that ugly dude, he gets you. And uh, that's like trading one ugly for another. Never mind. But uh, no, sorry. And uh, Father, forgive me. I don't know what I do. And, but you understand, David says he's given all of these things. And then here's Eliab. David, where's your few little sheep? Watch what he says. In the wilderness, as you leave him in the wilderness, and he says this, I know the pride, I know thy pride, and the naughtiness of thine heart. For thou art come down, that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, what have I now done? Is there not a cause? I'm going to help with God, I'm going to preach out of this little passage tonight. Father, we love you. Thank you for your goodness. Bless the rest of our time here, Lord. Thank you for the willingness and, the, and just the faithfulness of God's people just being in your house one more night. Pray that you bless us from the word of God. If there's any saved in here, please save them, Lord. But mostly this is for saved people. That's what revival is all about. And I pray that you'd help, them, help us, Lord, tonight. Me as I preach and them as they listen, I sure do need your spirit. And we know it, Lord. We've said it and we've sung it. All is vain unless the spirit of the Holy One come down. And Lord, I'll, if we don't have you here, we might as well just pack it up and go home. But Lord, I believe you want to show up and show out here tonight. I pray that you would do something in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You may be seated here tonight. As I was standing over the Valley of Eli, and you no doubt went there, I'm assuming. You all went to the Valley of Eli. And, and uh, it's so funny because everybody thinks they, they're going to find the stone that killed Goliath. And when you go to the Valley of Eli, you start to notice that 
you know, there's, there's a bunch of stones in that area, and everybody's down there. You know, we, you park on the side of the road with 18,000 other people there, and, and you're on the side of the road there, and there's these little gullies there, and, and we're like, oh, man, look at those stones. Oh, man, those are bright stones. Man, that's good. Let's get down there. Let's pick out five smooth stones over here by that brook that David had, and until you find out that the Israeli government, like, dumps thousands of them every year, and uh, so idiots like us can come from America and say, I got the stone right here, and uh, it's even got blood on it. See? No. But... It, you go in that valley, and it's almost like you can still, you can see it, though, setting up in this valley. I don't know if you went on that mountaintop called Azekah. It's one known in Scripture, and if you look it up, and you can see much of the battle is fought between there. And our guide was an excellent guide. He was a, he was a Jewish man, and he knew the Lord, and, and I pray for him often because his wife is, he's the only one in his family that's saved. His wife isn't saved. His boy isn't saved. Eventually, grandkids won't be saved unless they come to Jesus Christ. But we got near the Valley of Elah, and our guide took us up and out of that valley, come up on the mountaintop, and there's a city that was founded on top of there, and the city is called Azekah. And right there, you can see all the Valley of Elah, and he begins to describe to us as the, through the Scriptures, and he begins to open up the Bible. And, and I'm telling you, if you've never been, uh, if the Lord tarries is coming, I believe, Every, at least every preacher, or if you're a teacher of the Bible in any way, I, I just I want to encourage you, you ought to get there. And uh, things will open up in your mind. You're going to see things uh, like you've never seen them before. And, and I can describe what, you know, Puget Sound looks like, but until you've been there, until you've been by Rainier and seen it, and I'm just giving things that you can relate to there, you're not going to really understand all of it. And you're going to realize things in the Bible that how close everything is and, and, uh, and the, the, the things that are still there. It's amazing. And here we stood on top of Azekah and, we could look down and see the Valley of Eli where the battle would have been set in array. And if I could borrow your imagination here and set the scene here, because this is, this is everything here, the setting of the scene. And if you could picture us over here, we're on the Azica, that mountaintop, that city village up here. And the Philistines, they would have set the battle in array, but then some of them would have been on the mountain on the other side. You remember the Bible talks about that, and they called out, and, and they came off of the mountaintop there, and... And, uh, but there's something unusual about this battle that has been set in array. Eli is here in the middle. Azekah is here. And the Israelites are on this mountaintop. The Philistines are on this mountaintop. But where the Philistines are, the Israelites could see them. And just beyond where they would have been standing, Jerusalem is back here. Bethlehem would be right about that direction right there. And conversely, the Israelites, where they were here on Azekah, the major Philistine cities would have been behind them. It's just amazing how this battle, how they kind of got switched around in here. And so when David would have come from Bethlehem over there, he would have had to almost pass by them or go out of his way through some of the valleys and get to his people. It's a very unusual set. You don't usually want that kind of a battle array. Those of you that have been in the military, you're going to be outflanked by the enemy. If you, if you allow yourself to be cut off 
from your sources. And, and I've talked to Greg many times. He's into logistics, and that's part of his MOS there. And, and you, if you're going to supply some needs that these guys need, you're not going to say, you know what, let's go behind the enemy, and let's get cut off from ourselves, and then let's try to fight a battle. It doesn't work that way. But for some odd reason, that's just the setup of the battle. And can you picture David coming from Bethlehem, making his way there, and he comes out, and he's like, all right, what's going on here? And he has the cheese and the bread, and then he hears that Philistine. And I could just see this battle playing out in my mind here now that I was standing on top of Azekah. And our guide, he began to talk about some things about the battle. And, and then he, he, just like several other sites there, he said, he said, is anything on your guys' hearts as you stand here above the Valley of Elah? Is there anything that, there's a lot of us pastors, uh, pre preachers that were there, several pastors and then evangelists and some are missionaries and so forth. And, and he said, he said is there, is, is, come on, he said, you guys got, something's got to be firing off. In your, and you know how it is, you're in those sites and you're, you're remembering scriptures here and you're thinking about things over here and now things are coming into perspective. It's like, oh yeah, that's where you came from. Okay, it makes sense now. And other guys begin to raise their hand and, and then there was something like brewing in my toes, making its way up. And other guys would say, hey, I think God, God showed me this here. And, you know, is there not a cause? That's always the big one. You know, is there not a cause? And, and this over here and fighting the enemies of God and stepping out and da-da-da-da and all this kind of stuff that are going on here. And then God just gives me this hand-binger of a thought that became this sermon right here. His conversation is going on with his brother, and his brother's like, where's your little bit of sheep? Don't you got your little cheese? Don't you got the little crackers to give out here? David, why are you speaking up? Why don't you shut up and go somewhere else? Why don't you make your way back to Bethlehem? You left the sheep in the wilderness? What's dad going to think about this? And then he says to him, I know the naughtiness of thy heart. You came out here to see the battle. Here's the thing, and here's the sermon tonight. David didn't just come out to see the battle. David came out to get in the battle. There was something about David that he was not content with just seeing the battle. He didn't just want to see the blood and guts. He wanted them rolling through his fingers. He didn't just come to see something get done. He came, if need be, to get on the battlefield for his Lord. And sad to say, Years ago, I heard about the 80-20 rule in the church. And that's where 80% of the work gets done by 20% of the people. And the fact of the matter is tonight, I think that even needs to be retooled. It's usually 90-10. And I'm telling you here tonight, there are Christians all over this auditorium, all over my church auditorium, all over, even if you go to Bible colleges, even if you go to larger churches, you're going to find out there are a lot of people that are content with just seeing the battle get done. And they don't have any plans to get in the battle themselves. Would to God tonight that we would spend the last night of this revival with our hearts aflame, with our souls burning, to say, I'm not just content with seeing the battle, I want to get in the battle for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Many of us, uh, we've been content to watch our pastors, uh, and my pastor's the same way. He's a hardworking man. Uh, he wants to serve the Lord. Uh, when we had our new church building being built, guess what? He had the hammer out there, both hands. He had the nail gun out there. He was involved in everything. When every cleanup day, he was there. Every, uh, listen, every work day, he was there. When the meals needed to be made, he was there. And I'm going to tell you what I decided in my heart to do over 12 years ago when we built that building. If my preacher's going to show up, I'm going to show up because I don't just want to be content with watching him go to battle. I want to get in the battle myself. Sadly, we have Christians that are content with just standing on the sideline and we're watching the giants defy our God. We're watching the world attack the church, and we're watching the world attack our faith, and we're watching the world attack our young people even. We're watching the world uh, try to steal the minds and the hearts of our children, and we are content with letting the pastor or the church deacon or the leadership or maybe a youth pastor somewhere or the camp speaker. We'll let them come in. We'll let the evangelists come in, and we'll watch them do battle with the devil, but don't you dare ask me to step out there on the battlefield. David said, listen, Eliab, I didn't just come here to see something. I came here to get in. Can I ask you here tonight, when are you going to get in the battle? When are you going to get in the battle, Christian? When are you going to get in the battle, young person? You see, the Christian army and the Christian life, it is not a spectator sport. It is for participants. And we've got to get to the place in our hearts and minds where we're not just content to watch the soldiers of the Lord go by, but we say, you know what? I'm willing to get involved. I'm willing to do what it takes. I don't have to be the general. I don't have to be the colonel. I don't have to be the commandant in charge. I don't have to be, listen, the rear admiral. I just want to be in the service for my Lord. When I was in Bible college in September 11, 2001, of course, we just celebrated 23, 22 years since 9-11 on Monday. I was in Bible college at the time. As a matter of fact, I remember exactly where I was because I was in the dorms getting ready. And we didn't have TVs in our dorms. We were Bible college, you know, it's against the Lord or something. And uh, we didn't have a TV in there and, and not even a radio. We didn't have a radio in there. And I got in my car. And usually if you're with me, I, I get in my car a lot of times, I just put on music. I was putting on music, going down the road, praising the Lord and everything else. And then right before I got out of my car, I pressed stop on the tape. Yeah, it was a tape. Amen. It was, I, I was driving an 88 Buick Riviera. That thing was slick as a button. It was tan in color. It had a brown rag top. It looked like a convertible, but it wasn't. And, uh, but I wanted them to think it was. And, uh, it rag top there. That thing had a 3800 series motor, the best motor GM ever put out. That thing was slick as a button. I could get for $40, could get me from Longview, Texas, all the way up to Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It, I love that thing. It, it was an 88, but it had a touch screen already on there. It's amazing. That thing was way ahead of its time. And the screen didn't work half the time. But uh, in the wintertime, I used to have to hit it, boom, and then it come back on. Then I hit play again. And, uh, but I loved that thing. And I stopped the tape. And as I stopped the tape, I heard airplane hit building. That's all I heard. And I was like, oh, okay. In my mind, in some third world country, some airplane had run into a building. 
But then I remember it said something about New York, and, and I turned my car off, and I thought, oh, man, one of those little, you know, uh, puddle jumpers, Cessnas, they, they, they hit the, you know, one of the buildings down the Empire State Building, which had happened before. And I just thought, okay, you know, some little plane hit the building there, and, and then I went into the building, into the, into the college buildings, and, and every, everybody was kind of a buzz about everything going on, and I'm thinking, what is, I was going to Christian manhood class, and, and or New Testament survey, one of the two, and, and, and going class to class, and everybody's like buzzing about something, I was like, what, what's everybody talking about? My teacher, Brother John Smith, you know Brother John Smith, and choir leader down there, Brother John said, you didn't hear about what happened? I, was, I said, no, what happened? And he's like, you know, two airplanes hit the World Trade Tower at that time. And, and I'm like, well, what's the World Trade Tower? I didn't even know what it was. The only how I knew what it was is that scene from Home Alone 2. <laughs> Never mind. And uh, Father, forgive me for talking about that in church. But that's the only how I ever remember it. I didn't know what the World Trade Towers were. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, what's, what's? And they're like, dude, do you not understand what's going on? We've been hit by terrorists. And all of a sudden, they begin to tell me now the Pentagon's been hit, and now the third airplane hits here, and now the towers collapse, and this is going on here. And our minds are like, what in the world is going on? And, and we, went, we went over to chapel that day. Somebody preached in chapel. I forget who it was. But, I mean, it was like all of us were ready to join the Marine Corps after chapel that day. And, uh, but it, it was, it was uh, I went to McDonald's to watch it on TV. And some of you, those of you that are older, you know what I'm talking about. You remember when you first saw and you're like, it was like watching a movie. I'm like, I cannot believe something. Those airplanes are going. There's thousands of people in those towers. You just knew. And I'm like, dear Lord, what is going on? I tried to get a hold of my pastor, and he was actually stuck in Montana. He was preaching for Brother Tom Lamont's out there in, 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 uh, in uh, Missoula, Montana. And he, he, they had been cut off, and they had cut cell phone stuff. And he's trapped out there trying to get back here. And, and I'm like, should I go home? What do I do? Are we being attacked? Is it all-out war on our nation? Do I need to get a gun and, 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 and go post up somewhere? I didn't know what was happening. But in the middle of all that, this little thing began to take fold in our college. We had this guy in our college. He was from Connecticut. I mean, he was Connecticut through and through. I mean, he had the jean, the jeans, the baggy jeans, the Timberland boot. He had. He was Kentucky. Or Kentucky. He was. He was Connecticut to the core. And he always used to say, he say, he said, I, I was, I was in the Marine ROTC, and he'd always brag about being in the Marine ROTC. And time after time after time, we'd always have to hear, I was an ROTC, I was an ROTC, I was an ROTC. And he would always say this, if my country ever needed me, I would sign up right away if my country ever needed me. Well, now September 11th happens, and his country needs him. But us being who we are, we wanted to help the country need him. And so one of my friends decided, we're going to call him and convince him we're the Marines. So one of my buddies, one of my buddies gets on the phone, and he's like, uh, "Is this such and such?" He mentioned his name. Yes, sir, it is. This is the such and such from the Marine Corps. Your country needs you. And he was like, "My country needs me." And all of a sudden, he started. He said, "Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. All right. Yes, sir." And it's my buddy who's on the other end. "Yes, sir. Yes, sir." And I didn't know. I didn't know what they were doing. I had no idea that they were playing this prank on him. And next thing I know, I'm driving back from the main campus 
to our dormitories, and I see this young man outside. His entire ownings are packed up. He's in one. He's got one of those uh, military uh, duffel bags from the from the Marine Corps ROTC, and he is standing at attention in front of the dorms. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be entertaining. I don't know what just happened, but this is about to go down. And so I drive up, and I see him, and I'm like, so I go to the dorms where all the guys used to be here, and I'm like, what is going on? And they're all cackle laughing like third graders. And I'm like, I'm like this is not going to end well. And they convinced him that his country needed him. And he, I mean, he's just there, and I, we're trying to talk to him. He wouldn't even talk to us. It was like, I think he thought he signed the enlistment papers already. I mean, he was just like not saying a word. And finally gets back to the vice president of the college. But this kid's out here waiting for his country needs him. And those dudes got in so much trouble. And when he found out it was a joke, he was about to kill everybody in that dorm. I was like, it wasn't me, it was him right over there. And we just make fun of that. We say, man, this guy's an idiot, especially. But, but when it came the time where he thought his country needed him, guess what? He stood at the post and he said, if my country needs me, he said, I'm willing to sign up right now. It was a fake recruiter, but he thought it was real. And he believed that America needed him and he was willing to get out there and put it on the line. Oh, by the way, about eight months later, he did put it on the line. After that year of Bible college, he went and he signed up for the Marine Corps. And he did several tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. And about four or six years later, he was honorably discharged as a United States Marine. You see, Eli, he was not willing to just see the battle. He got in the battle. And as much as we made fun of him, and as much as it was comical to see him stand at that post, there were others who ran their mouth but never stood at the post. And I'm saying there's a lot of Christians around this world today. We are watching our Christian brothers. And I'm telling you, it's, it's hardly a day where I don't see something from from, uh, uh, I forget the organization's uh, uh, Voice of the Martyrs. And they talk about our Christian brothers and what's happening to them. I've got friends who are in countries that if they were to be found out, they would, they would immediately be killed in their entire families. I've got a friend who's in a country that no longer, you, you can't preach the Bible openly. And he has had personal converts of his that have had their heads taken off. He has had personal converts of his. I met a man several years ago. I was in a pastor's conference, and that man uh, was a Syrian national. His daddy was a Baptist preacher before him in Syria, and he was a Baptist preacher second generation. And they asked this man one time, they said, have you faced any persecution? And this man, I'm talking about, he stood as close as I am from you right now. This man said, I have been tortured seven times for the sake of the gospel. We're upset if our church goes a little bit long, aren't we? 
We're upset if the preacher says, hey, we ought to be all soul winning. And listen, we're, we're, we, got, we got brothers and sisters in Christ that are literally giving up their lives for the sake of the gospel. And you and I, we applaud them. And we may throw a little bit of money in the plate for them. But there comes a time where you and I can no longer sit on our blessed assurance and not be a part of the battle. Hey, it's time right now to get in the battle. Many of us, uh, we walk around and say, Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. If he's coming back, uh, if you believe the general, I don't know all the uh, uh, ranks and all that kind of stuff, Brother Greg, but if you believed when you were in basic and that drill sergeant, if you knew he was coming in in five minutes, I would dare to say you wouldn't be sitting on your duff. You'd probably be scrambling and say, hey, he's coming back. We need to get the job done. We need to enlist our platoon leader. Let's get in charge. Let's fall in line. Let's get the job done. And yet I see Christians by the thousands and by the millions all claiming Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back. If he's really coming back and you believe that, then don't sit on the sidelines. Get involved. Get in the battle. Several things about this battle. I want you to see number one, David got in the battle because his master was obeyed. We won't have time to look at it all tonight, but in verse number 17 through verse number 20, here's, what, here's how David ended up in the battle. You listen to me, young people? He knew how to obey his mother and father. What got David ready for the battle was he knew how to obey in the first place. And I'm going to tell you today, we as adults, we don't like that word very much, do we? We don't like that obedience thing. We don't like somebody telling us what to do. And that's why when we drive, we say we can drive eight over the speed limit, can't we? We ignore the fact that it's called speed limit. Don't look at me so, you know, innocent because I drive just like you do. <laughs> and, uh, and, but we do that, why? Because we don't like being told what to do. We don't like when there's a bold preacher. We don't like when there's a bold parent. We don't like when our husbands are bold and they're trying to lead us. We don't like kids when our parents are bold and they try to lead us. But I'm going to tell you, if you're going to get in the battle, you're going to have to learn how to obey. I've met a lot of preacher boys who want to, and, and forgive me, but I, I despise the phrase, do something big for God. Because I believe it trained a generation of little mushhead preacher boys that if it wasn't a big church or a big bus route or a big Sunday school class, that it wasn't big for God. Can I tell you where two or three are gathered in his name, that's big right there. And we have trained a generation that if it's not big, if it's not magnanimous and they don't need to do it, no. The Bible says if you give a cup of water in his name, he will never forget it. What we need is people that know how to obey. Can I tell you, I've said it time and time again through the years of preaching, particularly to young people, but I say it to adults as well. It's easier to move, it's easier to steer a moving vehicle than it is the one that's sitting still. And because we have not obeyed what God is already telling us, you don't have to pray about being a soul winner. He already told you to witness to people. You don't have to pray about coming to church. He already told you to not forsake coming to church. You don't have to pray about singing praises to him. He had commanded you to sing praises to him. And so because we don't obey, we don't end up getting into the bigger battles because we've just simply not learned to obey our masters. 
You young people, if you don't know how to obey when your mom and dad tell you to make the bed, don't worry about coming to surrender to the mission field. Because if you don't know how to obey them, you're going to have a hard time obeying God in the middle of Papua New Guinea. You say, I don't like that. Well, when you preach next week, you can preach something different. But Jesus said this, you were faithful in the in the few things, I'm going to make you ruler over many. God's plan is always you start out with the little things. You start out with little obedience. You obey your mom and dad. You learn how to obey those that are in authority over you. You learn how to live peaceably with all men. You learn how to pray for those in authority. You learn to obey them to have the rule over you because they watch for your souls. And if you do not learn to obey those that are over you, uh, sir, listen, and listen, ma'am, if you don't know how to listen to your own husband, don't tell me you're listening to the voice of God. We don't like that, though, do we? But David, what got him on the battlefield was he was willing to obey his master. Here's what got David ready for the battle, number two. Not only was his master obeyed, watch this, number two, the monster was seen. David recognized who the true enemy was. And I tell you what's keeping some of us out of the battles, we don't even know who the true enemy is. See, you think your enemy is the preacher. You think the enemy is the person across the church from you. You think the enemy is somebody who didn't shake your hand that one time when they came to church. You think the enemy is somebody who made a Facebook post about you. You think the enemy is, is, is somebody who didn't like your, your green bean casserole when you came to the church. Uh, over. Listen, Nobody's like your game bringing ladies all the time. I've been making that since 1947. Yeah, and we all don't like it. I'm not, and if you make green bean casserole, somebody likes yours. I'm just saying I don't. But we get we get in a we get in a tizzy because somebody said they didn't like the way I made that chicken. They didn't get the preacher didn't thank me for making that casserole for that family over there. Nobody thanked me for cleaning the bus out over here. Nobody thanked me for vacuuming. Listen to me. Jesus is going to thank you someday. Don't let that take you out of the battle because you forget who the real enemy is. The enemy's not the church across town from you. The enemy's not the, the enemy's, by the way, not even the compromisers. I, you know, people compromise all the time. I say, let them go. Let them go. They want to take Baptists off their name? Hallelujah, because I don't want to be identified with them anyways. Amen. Have at it, buddy. I'll scrape this off your sign. But even the liberal compromisers, they're not my enemy. Satan's the enemy. Sinners aren't even my enemy. Satan's the enemy. Sinners are just being duped by Satan. It's not Seattle that's your enemy. It's not Olympia that's your enemy tonight. It's not Madison, Wisconsin. That's my enemy. My enemy is Satan. My enemy is the one that's defying God. Living in rebellion to him. We said his master was obeyed. The monster was seen. Watch this. Number three, his motives were questioned. His motives were questioned. Can I tell you tonight, if you decide to get in the battle for the Lord, there's always going to be somebody running their mouth about you. Well, I started tithing and somebody else is complaining. There's always going to be somebody running their mouth about you when you're trying to do a work for God. There is nobody in the Bible that I can see of that started doing something for God that didn't have somebody throwing rocks at them or running their mouth about them. I'm going to give my life to the Lord. Why are you doing that? That's a waste of your time and talent and treasure because God is worthy of it all. That's why I'm doing it. 
You can question my motive all you want to. You can say I'm being arrogant. You can say I'm trying to look down my nose at you. Listen, I'm not trying to look down my nose at you. I'm no better than anybody sitting in this room today, but I do believe Jesus Christ is worthy of my entire life. He's worthy of me not just looking at the battle, but getting in the battle. Number four, watch this. His manhood was tested. You can look at verse 32 and 33. Goliath, he already says, send me a man to fight. And here's Saul. By the way, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else. And Saul should have been the one that stepped out there and, and, did, and, and did battle with Goliath. He was the tallest man as far as we know in the entire nation. And yet he's there hiding like everybody else is. He says to David, he says, uh, you're going to go fight with this Philistine? He said, you are but a youth, but he is a man of war from his youth. If I was David, I'd look at it and I'd say, well, why are you sitting over here crying like a baby in a corner somewhere? If you're worried about me and my manhood, why don't you step up, big boy? You know, a lot of times in churches, we get mad at the women or maybe it's because us men haven't stepped up. I'm glad it's quiet in here. You're listening so well. That's why the average charismatic church is one run, run by a bunch of tongue-talking women. You know why? Because the men haven't stepped up. Sarah Palin should have never been near the candidacy of, of the Republican Party. There should have been some men that stood up. And I'm just saying, it's not, it's not very popular, but it's biblical. She had a husband. He's supposed to be the head of his home. I, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say he probably wasn't. And I'm telling you tonight, but it just like, they'll say, well, there's Deborah in the Bible. Yeah, there was Deborah because there was no men stepping up. When God did have men. She sat back down and some men took back up. I'm telling you today, men, if we have ever needed Christian manhood, we need it today. And you can check my home out. I'm not some chauvinist pig, but I do realize this. We need men that are leading the charge. And what they're trying to do, some of our military today, they're trying to be too politically correct, and they're going to get a bunch of women assaulted and killed on the battlefield. Because they're trying to convince us that somehow men and women are the same, and so we're going to send women to the front row of the battlefield. I'm going to tell you, that'd be the greatest mistake we ever made as a nation, as a military. In case you haven't figured out, there's a difference between a man and a woman. Every cell of your body screams that there is a difference between a man and a woman. You can change your body, you can mutilate it all you want to, but a thousand years from now, if they get a sample of your DNA, it's going to say X and Y or X and X chromosome. David's manhood was tested. You know what, men? You know what we need to do, men? We got to step it up again. I'm not trying to beat you up. I am trying to challenge you a little bit, though. You're going to watch everybody else fight in a battle and you not get involved? His manhood was tested. Watch this. His methods were proven. Verse 38 and 40. Saul comes to him and he says, hey, David, I want you to, to put on my armor. I want you to put on these things, David. I got my sword. I got all this stuff. And here's what David says. I have not proven those. But I got my trusty sling. You know what the world's trying to get us to do today? And the worldly Christians, they want us to try a bunch of unproven methods. 
It's, it's not time to try armor that hasn't been proved in battle. You know what I know that works? Altar calls. Knocking on doors. The old-fashioned plan of salvation. You know what I know? Music that lifts up Jesus instead of a singer. Music that sounds like you're in church and not in a bar. Music that you can tell who you're singing to. Some, half of these Christian songs today, I can't tell whether they're singing to their lover or to Jesus Christ. I've not proved these things. You know what works? Pastoral-led churches. Not elder board-ran churches. Pastoral-led churches. It's been proven. We've killed a lot of lions and bears with that. And I'm going to tell you, your methods are going to be proven. Why do you have church on Sunday night? Because the Bible says we're supposed to have more church, not less. Oh, you didn't realize Hebrews 12, 25, uh, 10.25 said that? It says so much the more. It says, forsake not the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is. See, God knew they were going to start cutting out services in churches. Because he said, he said, forsake not, and he said, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, that conjunction, and it's for exhorting, and it's for not forsaking the assembling. And he says, I want you to do that both so much more as you see the day approaching. If we're getting closer to Jesus coming back, like everybody says, we ought to be having more church, not less church. And yet that's the flavor of the day in Christendom, isn't it? It's to the point now, they don't have Sunday night, they don't have Wednesday night, and now they're cutting out Sunday school on top of that. I don't know if a woman in this room today that wants to spend less time with her family, if she could, and yet we're supposed to meet with the family of God less and less and less. I'm saying, we better go with what's been proven. We better go with old-fashioned preaching. A preaching that names sin and preaching that is strong and preaching that is long and preaching where you tell that you are wrong. That rhyme, that was pretty good right there. I was on the fly. <laughs> Rapping for Jesus again. Watch this. His motivation was revealed. Verse 45 through 47. His motivation was revealed. What did he say? He said, thou comest to me with the sword and the spear and I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts. The God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied, this day will the Lord deliver thee into my hand, and I will smite thee and take thy head from thee. And I will give your carcasses to the ho of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. His motivation was clear. Listen, I'm not preaching for popularity. That's probably clear by now. I'm not preaching to be popular. I'm not preaching so somebody can put me on their television show. I'm not preaching so I can get in somebody's newspaper. Listen, I got guys right now who want, they've been hounding me for four and five years to get a sermon to put in their newspaper, and I eventually probably will do it, but I'm not doing what I do to get in somebody's popularity contest. I'm not doing what I'm doing so I can get on somebody's uh, billboard of their church and the kiosk of their church and have my name written in the marquee. I'm not doing what I'm doing so I can get on TBN one day and become popular. I'm doing what I'm doing that this world may know, that this earth may know that there is a God and that Jesus saves. What's your motivation for living the Christian life? You going to do it as long as your preacher's there? Or are you doing it for Jesus? See, I'll tell you what. The preacher, the preacher can rant and rave you into soul winning. 
And you might show up for three weeks. But if you do it for Jesus, long after he's gone, you'll still be soul winning. I can preach people out of standard. I can preach people into standards all of, my, all of my life long. But if all you do is do it because I'm ripping against it versus the Holy Ghost convicted you about it, you're not going to be doing it very long. And I'm telling you today, we need a revival of us doing and serving God because of him. It became very popular in the 1990s to just say, well, you just do right and whatever purpose you have and God will just, he'll just bless everything. No, my Bible says God will not forget my work and labor of love. So you're telling me if it's not a work and a labor of love, he's going to forget it. According to that book. He said, though I speak with the tongues of angels and of men and have not charity, that's love, that's the Holy Ghost manifested love, and have not charity, he said, I am become as a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. He said, no, I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mystery and have all knowledge. He said, he said if I have not charity, that it's nothing. And watch this, this is the scariest verse in the Bible to me. And though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. That is the scariest verse to me as a Christian. God said, you can do all of this thing you want to. You got the wrong motivation? Nothing. I like that verse. The God said, now he said, well, I'm just not going to do it then. I like what that one preacher said. He said, God loves a cheerful giver, but he'll take money from the grouches too. The solution is not to stop what you're doing. The solution is not to stop working for the Lord. The solution is not to stop fighting for the Lord. The solution is to get your heart right with God and to continue now with the right purpose. If you had the wrong purpose before, if you were coming to church for the wrong reasons or being a soul winner or being a Sunday school teacher or giving to the Lord, if you had the wrong reason, the solution is not to stop everything. The solution is to get your heart right with God so you're still doing it but for the right reasons and that way you'll be doing it 20, 30 years from now. Last point. Because my stomach's about to growl. memory. Here's what the Lord really gave me on top of Isaac. Watch this. His memory was revealed. We can take a look at verse 34. Remember he said, I killed the lion, I killed the bear. But he says something interesting in verse 51. David therefore ran and he stood upon the Philistine and he took the sword and he drew it out of the sheath and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. You say, what, how, what, do you, what do you mean David's memory? David, of course, he remembered that lion, and he remembered that bear that God allowed him to kill. And by the way, for some of you, God's allowed you to have some victories in your life, hasn't he? Even this week, some of the preaching, some of you have gotten help from the Lord. 
maybe with your burden, maybe something else that's going on in your life, and you've gotten some help from God, and God has allowed you to have some victories. Some of you that you got saved, and God began to work in your life, and you got over some addictions in your life, and some of you, God brought a spouse your way, and man, and God, maybe God put your marriage back together. Maybe God allowed you to, to, to win your kids back to God, and I'm telling you, God has given you all of these little battles. He's let you uh, get the lion and get the bear. Maybe some of you that have led people to Christ in your life, and man, these battles here or there, God has allowed you to do those things, and we ought to remind ourselves of that also. But there's some bigger battles to be fought. There's some more battles to be fought. But as I stood there on Azekah, started to realize where I was. Now watch this. I started to realize where I was. I'm like, okay, Philistines over there on that mountain. Jerusalem's over there. Bethlehem over there. Valley of Elah. Azekah. Behind Azekah, though, was those Philistine cities. Gath. But there was another city over there that had I not gone there, I would have never realized right behind Azekah was a city called Ashdod. Say, what's so special about Ashdod? If you were to go 11 chapters in reverse into your Bible right now, you would find something very peculiar happened at Ashdod. The Philistines had taken the Ark of God. And they thought, man, we got them now. We won the battle. Because even they realized that when that Ark was on the battlefield, they would start to lose. And they said, we got the Ark of God. Bring it to Ashdod and put it in the temple of Dagon. And here they come bringing the ark of God in the temple of Dagon. And they're like, we've got it. Man, we've won the battle. We've got the victory now. Yeah, buddy. And they lost the fight. And by the way, they did. They slaughtered the Jews that day. And they bring it back to Ashdod and they put it in the temple of Dagon. And all of a sudden they come back in. They leave it overnight and they come back in the next day. Timbered. I said this the other night. How'd you like to have to pick your God up? Uh, kids, kids, go pick God up. Okay. Dagon, of course, he was that fish God. You remember that, right? He had the head of a man, he had the hands of a man, he had the feet of a man, but he had the body of a fish. Reminds me of a couple of people I saw on MTV. Anyways, uh, and he had all this, and he falls over, and then they come back in the next day. Dagon. I like to think he had to bow every night to our God. Because every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Kids, pick God up again. He fell over. Go pick God up. Okay, mama. 
All right. Is God up again? Yeah, we got God up. They come in the next day. Honey, the kids picked God up twice and he still fell down. Go get God up. Man goes over there. All right. That's like I told my wife. I said, listen, when I promise you I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. There's no need to remind me every six months. (laughs) When a man says he's going to do it, he's going to do it. And uh, (laughs) you liked that, didn't you? And uh, the man comes to pick God up. Watch this. They come to pick their God up. And what is the condition is their God in? His feet are off. His hands are off, and his head. Could it be, preacher, that David stepped out on the valley of Elah, and he looked over his shoulder at the city of Ashdod and said, I have already seen what my God has done to your God. And the very same thing that my God did to your God, he took his head off of his shoulders. I'm about to come over here and I'm about to do the same thing to you that my God has already done. Listen to me. If there's anything that I'd encourage you, it's that God has already done great things in your life and he can still do great things tomorrow. You have seen God take the head off of your enemy. You have seen God. You have seen the devil lose your soul. You have seen the devil save other people's souls. You have seen God as we showed up and worshiped him. You've seen God as tears have run down the face of sinners and people getting right with the Lord. You have seen God do some great things. And I'm saying to you tonight, don't just be content with watching what he did in the past or in somebody else's life. Get on the battlefield tonight. So the choice is yours. You're going to spend the rest of your Christian life on the sidelines or you're going to get into battle. We look in churches and take inventory of yourself. I don't know who does what in this church. That's why I feel great liberty. I have no idea who does what in this church, except for the sound people. And, uh, and uh, they're playing card games right now. But anyways, uh, uh, conviction just fell on the sound booth. Now, watch this. I have no idea who does what in this church. But I know this, if your church is like mine, there's a lot of us that are sitting on the sidelines. I've often said this. I think if everybody in the church were to tithe, we'd have to find out how to, what to do with all this money. I don't know who tithes and who doesn't in this room. But if everybody were to give in this room today, I'm just telling you right now, 80-20, what would happen if everybody in here got on the battlefield and started giving? I wonder what kind of missionaries we could support if everybody in this room got on the battlefield. 
I, I, wonder, I wonder if we'd have to, I wonder if everybody got on the battlefield of soul winning and knocking on doors. I wonder what cities around here we would have to start going to because we're annoying the people of Puyallup so much because we just keep knocking on their doors. I wonder if everybody who had talents to sing or to play an instrument in this church actually got on the battlefield, we would have to come up with a schedule where we'd have to only let you play once every two weeks because we just have so many people that want to get involved. And I tell you, I go to church after church after church after church after church in America where they can't pay a piano player. And yet we have in our church, we got people who know how to play the piano, could be playing for special music groups at least if they can't play for congregational and they sit on their blessed assurance and don't ever do anything. We got people used to singing choirs and everything else, and I'm just saying, I'm, I'm not trying to beat you up. I, I'm just trying to shake you a little bit to say, what, would, what, what kind of Sunday schools could you start? If the people God's been speaking to about stepping up to the next level, what kind of Sunday schools could you start? I might have to study. I'm, I'm sorry. I wonder if you could have a youth choir if some teenagers got on the battlefield and said, you know what? We're in. We're in. We're not, we're not just, we're just, listen to me. I'm telling you, I, I have seen churches and I've seen pastors work themselves nearly to death. And here's what we say to those pastors. Well, isn't that what we pay you for? Now listen to me. We pay our military, don't we? I always convince myself that's where my tax dollars go. The blue angels when they ride over my house. We pay our military, we don't have the attitude with them. You know, it was something during that World War II generation... One of the things that fascinates me about the World War II era is all the, the savings bond. They were campaigning. And I remember those, that song, uh, Who's Coming Down the Rain to Get Your Savings Bonds? I forget the name. I forget the song now. Now that I try to sing it, it's gone. Your country needs you. Uncle Sam needs you. Remember Rosie the Riveter? Some of y'all remember that? All us old people. Rosie the Riveter, she would, she, because the men were going off to war and there's a bunch of women that stepped up and said, you know what? We can't go to war, but here's what we'll do. We'll go to the factories. We'll learn how to rivet the airplane parts together and we'll just, we'll do something because we've got to get involved. Little kids were, they were, they were collecting scrap metal and they were collecting everything they could in cans because they said, we got to do something. I wonder if we could have that in a church where we said, preacher, I got to do something. You need somebody to work the nursery? Okay, I may not be the general, but I can be in logistics. Some of you don't think, you don't think a cook is important in the military? Try to go to war without one. Not everybody can be a sniper. Not everybody can be the four-star general. I'm just saying, we need every soldier we can in this battle. 
We need guys that know how to sew. We need people that know how to cook. We need people that know how to iron. We need people that know how to repair. We need diesel mechanics. We need people that know how to write out forms correctly. We need everybody in this room to get in the battle. What are you going to do tonight, church? Maybe God sent this preacher from Wisconsin with this message tonight. Say, it's time to get in the battle. It's time to get in the battle. I would to God every pastor in America would be like, man, Brother Allen, you can't preach that message in my church. I don't even know what to do with all these people that are volunteering to get in the battle. I wonder if you would be like my friend Eli. Whether you really believe the country needed you or not, he was out in front of the dorm. And then you know what? A couple months later, he was swearing in. You know what we need tonight? We need some Christians that are going to stand up and say, I'm done with sitting on the sidelines. I'm done with watching everybody else serve. I'm done. You say, Brother Allen, my, my, I'm, I'm older and I can't do what I used to be able to do. You remember that song, Little As Much When God Is In It? That third verse, I love it. Are you laid aside from service, body worn with toil and care? You can still be in the battle in the sacred place of prayer. You say, Brother Allen, we just, we're just old widows in the church. Can I tell you, you can be that. I wish I, could, I wish I could learn how to play that song. It's called The Old Warriors Are Praying For Me. There's some of you that your bodies are torn up and you can't do anything. You could be the greatest assistant to this pastor that he's ever known if you would consistently pray and get a hold of God for this church and these ministries. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed here tonight. You've been a fantastic crowd to preach to this week. But I don't want to walk away from this meeting saying, we had a great meeting. without seeing God do something.